Hello again, Justin Spencer here. This week, our episode is going to be a bit shorter than usual. We are nearing the end of our story, and I think this particular ending should be savored a bit. Too fast, and we lose some of the depth of the characters. Most importantly, Long John Silver. In our cultural memory, Silver is an incredibly powerful figure. He's almost become an archetypical character. Rereading the book this time, I tried to keep my thoughts open as to why he has such an effect upon us. And it's a question I thought I'd put to all of you. Why do you think we are so drawn to Long John Silver? Welcome to part nine of Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island. Chapter 31 The Treasure Hunt Flint's Pointer Jem, said Silva when we were alone, I saved your life. You saved mine, and I'll not forget it. I seen the doctor waving you to run for it. With the tail of my eye, I did. And I seen you say no as plain as hearing. Jim, that one's to you. This is the first glint of hope I had since the attack failed, and I owe it to you. And now, Jim, we're to go for this here treasure hunting with sealed orders, too, and I don't like it. And you and me must stick close, back to back like, and we'll save our necks in spite of fate and fortune. Just then a man hailed us from the fire that breakfast was ready, and we were soon seated here and there about the sand over biscuit and fried junk. They had lit a fire fit to roast an ox, and it was now grown so hot that they could only approach it from the windward, and even there not without precaution. In the same wasteful spirit they had cooked, I suppose, three times more than we could eat and one of them, with an empty laugh, threw what was left into the fire, which blazed and roared again over this unusual fuel. I never in my life saw men so careless of the morrow. Hand to mouth is the only word that can describe their way of doing. And what with wasted food and sleeping sentries, though they were bold enough for a brush and be done with it, I could see their entire unfitness for anything like a prolonged campaign. Even Silver, eating away with Captain Flint upon his shoulders, had not a word of blame for their recklessness. And this the more surprised me, for I thought he had never shown himself so cunning as he did then. Hey, mates, he said. It's lucky you have barbecue to think for you with this ear head. I got what I wanted, I did. Sure enough, they have the ship. Where they have it, I don't know yet. But once we hit the treasure, we'll have to jump about and find out. And then, mates, us that has the boats, I reckon, has the upper hands. Thus he kept running on with his mouth full of hot bacon. Thus he restored their hope and confidence. And, I more than suspect, repaired his own at the same time. As for the hostage, he continued, that's his last talk, I guess, with him he loves so dear. I got my piece of news and thank you to him for that. But it's over and done. I'll take him in a line when we go treasure hunting. We'll keep him like so much gold. In case of accidents, you mark, and in the meantime. Once we got the ship and treasure both and off to sea like jolly companions, why then, we'll talk Mr. Hawkins over, we will. We'll give him his share, to be sure, for all his kindness. 
It was no wonder the men were in a good humour now. For my part, I was horribly cast down. Should the scheme he had now sketched prove feasible, Silver, already doubly a traitor, would not hesitate to adopt it. He had still a foot in either camp, and there was no doubt he would prefer wealth and freedom with the pirates to a bare escape from hanging, which was the best he had to hope on our side. Nay, and even if things so fell out that he was forced to keep his faith with Dr. Livesey, even then what danger lay before us? What a moment that would be when the suspicions of his followers turned to certainty, and he and I should have to fight for dear life, he a cripple and I a boy, against five strong and active seamen. Add to this double apprehension the mystery that still hung over the behaviour of my friends, their unexplained desertion of the stockade, their inexplicable session of the chart, or, harder still to understand, the doctor's last warning to Silver. Look out for squalls when you find it, and you will readily believe how little taste I found in my breakfast, and with how uneasy a heart I set forth behind my captors on the quest for treasure. We made a curious figure, had anyone been there to see us, all in soiled sailor clothes and all but me armed to the teeth. Silver had two guns slung about him, one before and one behind, besides the great cutlass at his waist and a pistol in each pocket of his square-tailed coat. To complete his strange appearance, Captain Flint sat perched upon his shoulder and gambling odds and ends of purposeless sea-talk. I had a line about my waist, and followed obediently after the sea-cook, who held the loose end of the rope, now in his free hand, now between his powerful teeth. For all the world I was led like a dancing bear. The other men were variously burthened, some carrying picks and shovels, for that had been the very first necessary they brought ashore from the Hispaniola, others laden with pork, bread, and brandy for the midday meal. All the stores, I observed, came from our stock, and I could see the truth of Silver's words the night before. Had he not struck a bargain with the doctor, he and his mutineers, deserted by the ship, must have been driven to subsist on clear water and the proceeds of their hunting. Water would have been little to their taste. A sailor is not usually a good shot, and besides all that, when they were so short of eatables, it was not likely they would be very flush of powder. Well, thus equipped we all set out, even the fellow with the broken head, who should certainly have kept in shadow, and straggled, one after another, to the beach, where two gigs awaited us. Even these bore trace of the drunken folly of the pirates, one in a broken thwart, and both in their muddied and unbailed condition. Both were carried along with us, for the sake of safety, and so, with our numbers divided between them, we set forth upon the bosom of the anchorage. As we pulled over, there was some discussion on the chart. The Red Cross was, of course, far too large to be a guide, and the terms of the notes on the back, as you will hear, admitted some ambiguity. They ran, the reader may remember, thus. Tall tree, spyglass shoulder, bearing a point to the north of north-northeast. Skeleton island, east-southeast and by east, ten feet. 
A tall tree was thus the principal mark. Now, right before us, the anchorage was bounded by a plateau from two to three hundred feet high, adjoining on the north the sloping southern shoulder of the spyglass, and rising again towards the south into the rough, cliffy eminence called the Mizzenmast Hill. The top of the plateau was dotted thickly with pine trees of varying height. Every here and there, one of the different species rose forty or fifty clear feet above its neighbors. And which of these was the particular tall tree of Captain Flint could only be decided on the spot and by the readings of the compass. Yet, although that was the case, every man on board the boats had picked a favorite of his own ere we were halfway over. Long John alone shrugging his shoulders and bidding them wait till they were there. We pulled easily by Silver's directions, not to weary the hands prematurely, and after quite a long passage landed at the mouth of the second river, that which runs down a woody cleft of the spyglass. Thence, bending to our left, we began to ascend the slope towards the plateau. At the very first outset, Heavy, miry ground and a matted, marish vegetation greatly delayed our progress. But by little and little the hill began to steepen and become stony underfoot, and the wood to change its character and grow in a more open order. It was, indeed, a most pleasant portion of the island that we were now approaching. A heavy-scented broom and many flowering shrubs had almost taken the place of grass, Thickets of green nutmeg trees were dotted here and there with the red columns and the broad shadow of the pines, and the first mingled their spice with the aroma of the others. The air, besides, was fresh and stirring, and this, under the sheer sunbeams, was a wonderful refreshment to our senses. The party spread itself abroad in a fan shape, shouting and leaping to and fro. About the centre, and a good way behind the rest, Silver and I followed, I tethered by my rope, he ploughing with deep pants among the sliding gravel. From time to time, indeed, I had to lend him a hand, or he must have missed his footing and fallen backward down the hill. We had thus proceeded for about half a mile, and were approaching the brow of the plateau, when the man upon the furthest left began to cry aloud, as if in terror. Shout after shout came from him, and the others began to run in his direction. "'I could have found a treasure,' said old Morgan, hurrying past us from the right. "'For that's clean at Indeed, as we found when we also reached the spot, it was something very different. At the foot of a pretty big pine, and involved in a green creeper, which had even partly lifted some of the smaller bones, a human skeleton lay with a few shreds of clothing, on the ground. I believe a chill struck for a moment to every heart. "'He was a seaman,' said George Merry, who, bolder than the rest, had gone up close and was examining the regs of clothing. "'Leastwise this is good sea cloth.' "'Aye, aye,' said Silver. "'Like enough. You wouldn't look to find a bishop here, I reckon. But what sort of way is that for bones to lie?' Taint in nature. Indeed, on a second glance, it seemed impossible to fancy that the body was in a natural position. But for some disarray, the work, perhaps, of the birds that had fed upon him, 
or of the slow-growing creeper that had gradually enveloped his remains, the man lay perfectly straight, his feet pointing in one direction, his hands raised above his head like a diver's, pointing directly in the opposite. "'I taken a notion into my old numbskull,' observed Silver. "'Here's the compass. There's the tip-top pint of Skeleton Island sticking out like a tooth. Just take a baron, will you, along the line of them bones?' It was done. The body pointed straight in the direction of the island, and the compass read duly east-south-east and by east. "'I thought so,' cried the cook. "'This here is a pointer.' Right up there is our line for the pole star and the jolly dollars. But by thunder, if it don't make me cold inside to think of Flint. This is one of his jokes, and no mistake. Him and these six was alone here, and killed him every man. And this one he hauled here and lay down by compass, shiver my timbers. They're long bones, and the hair's been yellow. Aye, that would be Allardyce. You mind Allardyce, Tom Morgan? Aye, aye, returned Morgan. I mind him. He owed me money, he did, and took my knife ashore with him. Speaking of knives, said another, why don't we find his lying around? Flint worked the man to pick a seaman's pocket, and the birds, I guess, would leave it be. Boy, the powers, and that's true, cried Silver. "'There ain't nothing left here,' said Mary, still feeling round among the bones. "'Not a copper doit, nor a backy box. It don't look natural to me.' "'No, by gum, it don't,' agreed Silver. "'Not natural, nor not nice,' says ye. "'Great guns, messmates, but if Flint was living, this would be a hot spot for you and me. Six they were, and six are we, and bones is what they are now.' I saw him dead with these here deadlights, said Morgan. Billy took me in, and there he lay with penny pieces on his eyes. Dead? Aye, sure enough he's dead, and gone below, said the fellow with the bandage. Well, if ever spirit walked, it will be Flint's. Dear heart, but he died bad, dear Flint. Aye, that he did, observed another. No, he raged. And now he ordered for rum, and now he sang fifteen men were his only songs, mates. And I tell you truth, I never rightly liked to hear it since. It was main hot, and the windy was open, and I hear that old song coming out as clear as clear, and the death all on the man already. Come, come, said Silver. Stow this talk. He's dead, and he don't walk that I know. Leastways, he won't walk by day, and you may lay to that. Care killed a cat. Fetch a head for the doubloons. We started, certainly, but in spite of the hot sun and the staring daylight, pirates no longer ran separate and shouting through the wood, but kept side by side and spoke with bated breath. The terror of the dead buccaneer had fallen on their spirits. Chapter 32 The Treasure Hunt The Voice Among the Trees Partly from the damping influence of this alarm, partly to rest silver and the sick folk, the whole party sat down as soon as they had gained the brow of the ascent. 
the plateau being somewhat tilted towards the west, this spot on which we had paused commanded a wide prospect of either hand. Before us, over the treetops, we beheld the cape of the woods fringed with surf. Behind, we not only looked down upon the anchorage and Skeleton Island, but saw, clear across the spit and the eastern lowlands, a great field of open sea upon the east. Sheer above us rose the spyglass, here dotted with single pines, there black with precipices. There was no sound but that of the distant breakers mounting from all round and the chirp of countless insects in the brush. Not a man, not a sail upon the sea. The very largeness of the view increased the sense of solitude. Silver, as he sat, took certain bearings with his compass. "'There are three tall trees,' said he, "'about in right line from Skelton Island. "'Spoyglass shoulder. "'I take it that means lower point there. "'It's child's play to find the stuff now. "'I've half a mind to dine first. "'I don't feel sharp,' growled Morgan. "'Thinking of Flint, I take it were, as done me. "'Ah, well, my son, you praise your stories he's dead.' said Silver. "'He were an ugly devil,' cried a third pirate with a shudder. "'That blew in the face, too.' "'That was how the rum took him,' added Mary. "'Blue? Well, I reckon he was blue. That's a true word.' Ever since they had found the skeleton and got upon this train of thought, they had spoken lower and lower, and they had almost got to whispering by now, so that the sound of their talk hardly interrupted the silence of the wood. All of a sudden, out of the middle of the trees in front of us, a thin, high, trembling voice struck up with the well-known air and words, Fifteen men on a dead man's chest, yo-ho-ho, and a bottle of rum. I never have seen men more dreadfully affected than the pirates. The colour went from their six faces like enchantment. Some leapt to their feet, some clawed hold of the others. Morgan grovelled on the ground. "'It's Flint, boy!' cried Mary. The song had stopped as suddenly as it began, broken off, you would have said, in the middle of a note, as though someone had laid his hand upon the singer's mouth. Coming so far through the clear, sunny atmosphere among the green treetops, I thought it had sounded airily and sweetly, and the effect on my companions was the stranger. Come, said Silver, struggling with his ashen lips to get the word out. This won't do. Stand by to go about. This is a rum start, and I can't name the voice. But it's someone skylarking, someone that's flesh and blood, and you may lie to that. His courage had come back as he spoke and some of the colour to his face along with it. Already the others had begun to lend an ear to this encouragement, and were coming a little to themselves, when the same voice broke out again, not this time singing, but in a faint distant hail that echoed yet fainter among the clefts of the spyglass. Darby McGraw! It wailed, for that is the word that best describes the sound. Darby McGraw! Darby McGraw! Again, and again, and again, and then rising a little higher, and with an oath that I leave out, Fetch off the rum, Darby! 
the buccaneers remained rooted to the ground, their eyes starting from their heads. Long after the voice had died away, they still stared in silence dreadfully before them. Don't fix it, gasped one. Let's go. They were his last words, moaned Morgan. His last words above bold. Dick had his Bible out and was praying volubly. He had been well brought up at Dick before he came to sea and fell among bad companions. Still, Silver was unconquered. I could hear his teeth rattle in his head, but he had not yet surrendered. Nobody in this here island ever heard of Darby, he muttered. Not one but us that's here. And then, making a great effort, Shipmates, he cried, I'm here to get that stuff, and I'll not be beat by man nor devil. I never was feared of flint in his life, and by the powers I'll face him, Ted. There's seven hundred thousand pound, a quarter mile from here. When did ever a gentleman of fortune show his stern to that much dollars, for a boozy old seaman with a blue mug and him dead too? But there was no sign of reawakening courage in his followers, rather indeed of growing terror at the irreverence of his words. Belay there, John, said Mary. Don't you cross his spirit. And the rest were all too terrified to reply. They would have run away severally had they dared, but fear kept them together and kept them close by John, as if his daring helped them. He, on his part, had pretty well fought his weakness down. Spirit? Well, maybe, he said. But there's one thing not clear to me. There was an echo. Now, no man ever seen a spirit with a shadow. Well, then, what's he doing with an echo to him? I should like to know. That ain't in nature, surely. This argument seemed weak enough to me, but you can never tell what will affect the superstitious. And, to my wonder, George Merry was greatly relieved. Well, that's so, he said. You had upon your shoulders, John, no mistake. About shipmates, this here crew is on a wrong tack, I do believe. And come to think of it, it was like Flint's voice, I grant you, but not just so clear away like it, after all. It was like a somebody else's voice now. It was like a... Boy, the powers... Ben Gunn, roared Silver. Oh, so it were, cried Morgan, springing on his knees. Ben Gunn it were. It don't make much odds now, do it? asked Dick. Ben Gunn's not here in the body, any more than Flint. But the older hands greeted this remark with scorn. Why, nobody minds Ben Gunn, cried Mary. Dead or alive, nobody minds him. It was extraordinary how their spirits had returned, and how the natural colour had revived in their faces. Soon they were chatting together with intervals of listening, and not long after, hearing no further sound, they shouldered the tools and set forth again, Mary walking first with Silver's compass to keep them on the right line with Skeleton Island. He had said the truth, Dead or alive, nobody minded Ben Gunn. Dick alone still held his Bible, and looked round him as he went with fearful glances, and he found no sympathy, and Silver even joked him on his precautions. 
I told ya, said he, I told ya you had spoiled your Bible. If it ain't no good to swear by, what do you suppose a spirit would give for it? Not that. And he snapped his big fingers, halting a moment on his crutch. But Dick was not to be comforted. Indeed, it was soon plain to me that the lad was falling sick. Hastened by heat, exhaustion, and the shock of his alarm, the fever, predicted by Dr. Livesey, was evidently growing swiftly higher. It was fine open walking here upon the summit. Our way lay a little downhill, for, as I have said, plateau tilted towards the west. The pines, great and small, grew wide apart, and even between the clumps of nutmeg and azalea, wide open spaces baked in the hot sunshine. Striking as we did pretty near northwest across the island, we drew, on the one hand, ever nearer under the shoulders of the spyglass, and on the other looked ever wider over that western bay where I had tossed and trembled in the coracle. The first of the tall trees was reached, and by the bearing proved the wrong one. So with the second. The third rose nearly two hundred feet into the air above a clump of underwood, a giant of a vegetable, with a red column as big as a cottage, and a wide shadow around it in which a company could have manoeuvred. It was conspicuous far to see, both on the east and the west, and might have been entered as a sailing mark upon the chart. But it was not its size that now impressed my companions. It was the knowledge that seven hundred thousand pieces in gold lay somewhere buried below its spreading shadow. The thought of the money, as they drew nearer, swallowed up their previous terrors. Their eyes burned in their heads, their feet grew speedier and lighter, their whole soul was bound up in that fortune, that whole lifetime of extravagance and pleasure that lay waiting there for each of them. Silver hobbled, grunting on his crutch, his nostrils that stood out and quivered. He cursed like a madman when the flies settled on his hot and shiny countenance. He plucked furiously at the line that held me to him, and from time to time turned his eyes upon me with a deadly look. Certainly he took no pains to hide his thoughts, and certainly I read them like print. In the immediate nearness of the gold, all else had been forgotten. His promise and the doctor's warning were both things of the past, and I could not doubt that he hoped to seize upon the treasure, find and board the Hispaniola under cover of night, cut every honest throat about that island, and sail away as he had at first intended, laden with crimes and riches. Shaken as I was with these alarms, it was hard for me to keep up with the rapid pace of the treasure-hunters. Now and again I stumbled, and it was then that Silver plucked so roughly at the rope and launched at me in his murderous glances. Dick, who had dropped behind us and now brought up the rear, was babbling to himself both prayers and curses as his fever kept rising. This also added to my wretchedness and to crown all I was haunted by the thought of the tragedy that had once been acted on that plateau, when that ungodly buccaneer with the blue face, who died at Savannah singing and shouting for drink, had there, with his own hand, cut down his six accomplices. This grove, that was now so peaceful, 
must have then rung with cries, I thought, and even with the thought I could believe I heard it ringing still. We were now at the margin of the thicket. "'As our mates all together!' shouted Mary, and the foremost broke into a run. And suddenly, not ten yards further, we beheld them stop. A low cry arose. Silver doubled his pace, digging away with the foot of his crutch like one possessed, and the next moment he and I had come also to a dead halt. Before us was a great excavation, not very recent, for the sides had fallen in, and grass had sprouted on the bottom. In this were the shaft of a pick, broken in two, and the boards of several packing-cases strewn around. One of these boards I saw, branded with a hot iron, the name Walrus, the name of Flint's ship. All was clear to probation. The cash had been found and rifled. The seven hundred thousand pounds were gone. Thank you again for listening to this episode of Storylight. We would be really grateful if you would subscribe to the podcast and give it a nice rating and review on whatever platform you listen. And if you have been enjoying the podcast, please tell a friend. We'd love to share these little bright lights of stories with everyone. You are my joy. You are my happy thoughts. I'll see you next time.